You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Good morning, Grace Point Northwest. I'm Nathan. Morning. You guys are awake. Wow. Um, I'm Nathan Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Point. It is a pleasure to be here again uh, today. So last week we discussed how Boaz redeemed both Ruth and Naomi, but he was ultimately pointing to our Redeemer, who is Jesus, who redeemed us. We also talked about that redemption is based on the character of the Redeemer, not the redeemed. So today we're going to be discussing a subject that I have battled with for a while, which is joy. We'll be focusing on Psalm 37 verses 1 through 7 and figuring out how to keep our eyes on our Creator of our universe, even through the hard times. So as we explore this passage, please follow along with your own Bible, either digital or analog. So for most people, Christmas season is a joyous time. But for others, it is a time where it is painful due to a loss of a loved one or loss of a relationship. For me, it is a combination. Because my dad died nine years ago. And my eldest daughter is eight. So he never got to see my children. Never got to see my four kids. They never got to know his character, know that he was a man of God, and figure out how he was as a grandfather. So for me, for the past nine years, Christmas has been hard. It's been hard but joyous because i got four little girls that run around like crazy children whenever it comes to Christmas. Um, so it's kind of a bitter, uh, sweet uh, moment. So with that, guess what? My fight for joy has not been a natural one because naturally we don't fight for joy. So very similar to in this time of Thanksgiving, and then Christmas and New Year's, where we eat way too much, guess what? To get back into shape, we have to be focused with both what we are doing as well as the amount of time and the energy that is spent to get back in time. But same with fighting for our joy in times where you have lost a loved one, you've lost a relationship, and it is hard. It takes focused energy in the right area and the right amount of time. So today we're going to be discussing a couple valuable principles that David brings up in Psalm uh, 37 on how to fight for joy. So in Psalm 37, David is recalling what he's experienced over his time as uh, king of Israel. And it is both experiencing how God works in the righteous as well as the unrighteous alike. Alright, jumping into uh, verse 1. It says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So that first word fret is not something that we use on a regular basis. Uh, In the Hebrew it means to blaze up of anger, zeal, jealousy, burn and be displeased. So when corrupt, corrupt people get ahead, does that make you angry? Do you get jealous when they get ahead? And then coincidentally, to make it kind of hit home, when co-workers that you work with that will cut every corner to try and get ahead get that promotion that you want, how does that make you feel? Do you get angry? Do you get upset? And now the 
The question is, are you upset of how they got that promotion? Or are you upset because they got that promotion that you wanted? Did they get what you want? Or were you upset with the fairness of it all? So for many years after my dad's death, um, I was either envious of others when they would be talking about their dad, uh, or I'd be upset with them. Uh, Many many times because they'd be complaining about their dad, about that he didn't do this, he didn't do this, and they would be complaining that they didn't actually want to put the effort in to fix that relationship. And I would catch myself saying, it must be nice to be able to fight with your dad about something so simple. Um, But guess what? It unveiled my own heart that it was jealousy. It was envy of their situation and not truly dealing with mine. And this took a while, but God kept unveiling a couple Scriptures that unveiled uh, where I needed to focus. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So our purpose is to bring Him glory even in whenever we're mourning, even when we're uh, sorrowful, even when it hurts. We're supposed to bring Him glory, which that is hard. That is not easy. And as I searched and I looked through the word fretting, I realized there's a lower grade fever uh, of fretting which is called complaining. For any of those in the Air Force, you've realized that we have made this an art form. Why? Because we have eight bosses, Bob. We have, we have the se- Secretary of Defense, we have the four-star generals, and guess what? They can be 180 out on the direction that you're supposed to be doing. And it's, so it's extremely frustrating to deal with it. And so many times you feel like if you complain to someone, you're justified for your complaining if you talk to the right person. But as I uh, analyzed my own motives and my heart, I realized the root of both my fretting and complaining is a lack of trust and a lack of contentment on where God has me. And this also applied in regards to um, my dad passing, but also in that same time frame, my three grandparents died uh, and an uncle died all within two years. So there was a lot of built-up frustration and anger, uh, and I didn't know why this all happened. But again, I had to go back to the Scriptures. And 2 Corinthians 12.10 was very hard for me to deal with. It was, says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this is Paul writing this at the end of his life. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's writing to the Corinthian church. But he's been imprisoned multiple times. He's been persecuted. He's been left for dead on the side of the road multiple times and he's saying I am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong so are we content where God has us are we okay if we have to rely on God for our next breath for our next day just to get to tomorrow which leads us into verse 2 For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. So he's talking about the evildoers and the wrongdoers from verse 1. And their fate is that they are going to disappear off the face of this earth. They're going to be remembered no more. But guess what? We know that they're not just going to disappear. That they're going to have to go to the judgment seat 
and be judged for their actions and for their heart and that they're going to spend eternity in hell. So how do we fight our temptation to envy the wicked? To envy those that have what we don't have that we may want. We have to look to the future. We have to keep our eyes on heaven. We have to look to our sovereign God that He is sovereign. He's in control of every minute detail that is happening in our life. G. Campbell Morgan says this, The test is found in time. All the prosperity of the wicked is transient. It passes and perishes as do the wicked themselves. So many times when we hear this, we automatically think of those around that are evil. Those around that are doing the things that we know are wrong. But guess what? There's a three-part perspective when we think of those that are evil around us. First, we were once them. We had that carnal nature. We had that carnal heart. Second, guess what? If we don't share the gospel with them, yes, they are going to disappear like the grass. And justice will be served. But guess what? We are called to witness to even Saul who became Paul. And in the end, if we do share the gospel with them and they refuse the gospel, justice will be served. But we also need to think and remember that if, if someone hadn't led us to Christ, we would be in the same spot. We have gospel amnesia. We forget that we were once them. We forget Ephesians 2, verse 1 and then 4 through 6. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, we have gospel amnesia. We forget that He chose us without deserving us deserving any of His favor. Our joy is in Him. Our joy is in what He has done for us. John Piper says this about the fight for joy. He says, The fight for joy in Christ is not a fight to soften the cushion of Western comforts. It is a fight for strength to live a life of self-sacrificing love. It is a fight to join Jesus on the Calvary Road and stay there with Him no matter what. So how did He endure the road to Calvary, carrying His cross up there, knowing what was going to be happen, the pain and the suffering, and that He was going to be separated from the Father. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. Why? Because He, like us, had His eyes on heaven. He went to the cross for you and for me. And the entire time He had His eyes on His Father to do His will. He was despising the shame and the pain, not focusing on His issues, but on the Father's will. So we must follow that example. We must look to the Gospel to see how we need to treat that. We must continue to rehearse that Gospel story, looking to Jesus, not our own selfish desires, even when we're in that painful situation. Which leads us into verse 3. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So this word trust in the Hebrew means to be secure or sure in, put confidence in, to go quickly for refuge, a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. 
So when I initially heard that definition, I immediately thought to my three years that we spent in England, because every weekend we'd go find a new castle to go find and go explore, but it never failed. Every time we found a new castle, we'd find a World War II bunker right by it. And I could just imagine those air horns going off as the Luftwaffe were dropping their bombs or shooting their surface-to-surface missiles of these families waking up in the middle of the night and running towards these bunkers knowing if I can get there, I will survive. That is the same mentality that we need to have in trusting God. That we need to run to Him. And, And the state of this is continual. It is not just once. It's not just when I get on my knees that first time. It is continually trusting in Him that in Him and Him alone am I going to be self-sheltered and from pursuit, danger, or trouble. And why is that? So, later on in Psalm 37, in verse 23 through 25, uh, David says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds His hand. So that's so key that his that our steps are established by the Lord when we delight in Him. But guess what? As adults, we have such a hard time trusting others. Why? Because our parents may have failed us, grandparents, siblings, our friends, our co-workers. But guess what? Those kids set that example of how to trust. Especially my kids, they always are willing to be thrown up in the air as high as I can throw them, and they never complain, never think, is Daddy actually going to catch me? But an example from growing up, uh, so I was a child, when I was a child, my parents were uh, missionaries in uh, Sierra Leone, West Africa. And at the time, I was about eight years old. And my father, uh, I, and my brothers were helping demolish a wall in the kitchen. And my dad, at the end of the day, is like, don't put your shoes by the wall that we've just demolished. And I'm like, why? He goes, because there's like snakes and scorpions that may come up through uh, the wall. So just don't leave your shoes there. But as any standard eight-year-old, I was distracted in the next two minutes and I left my shoes literally right next to the rubble. So the next morning we eat breakfast, I go to put my shoes on and immediately start screaming bloody murder. So my dad picks me up, pulls off my shoe and a little brown scorpion falls out of my shoe. Uh, And for those that... Uh, no, the smaller the scorpion, the more deadly they are because they can't control their venom. Also, the little brown scorpions over there were about the third most poisonous uh, in West Africa. So for a grown adult, it would put you in excruciating pain for a week to two weeks. So here I am, an eight-year-old. My dad carries me to the bedroom, lays me down. He's like, son, what do you want me to do? You're going to drive 12 hours to the nearest hospital, or do you want me to pray for you? And somewhat selfishly, but with a lot of trust, I'm like, Dad, you're the missionary. Pray for me. I have a soccer game to play. So they walk out of the room. At, uh, so immediately he kneels down and he prays Luke 10:19 over me, which states, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So immediately I started to feel the pain start to dissipate. Mom and Dad walked out of the room and closed the door and I'm sitting there and I'm like okay the pain's actually it's going away dad prayed I'm healed sweet but am I grounded because I left the shoes where he told me not to leave 
So I'm like, should I ask for permission or ask for forgiveness later? I choose forgiveness. So I opened the window, jumped out the window, walked the mile down to the village and played soccer for the rest of the day. Should say my parents weren't very happy when I came back uh, home, but they were joyous at the same time because they thought I had gone delirious and wandered off into the jungle. But the question is, do I trust like that now? Do I immediately go, no, pray for me, God's going to heal me? No, I don't. It took me over five years to finally be at peace with why God had taken my dad at an early age. But guess what? Jesus wants us to trust, not like the adult, but as the child. In Matthew 18.3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So He's calling us to trust like a child. But so how do we trust like a child? It's easy. It's like my three-year-old. I mean, she's now four. Holy cow. Uh, comes to me and she asks me for permission for everything. Or she comes and asks my advice for everything. That's how we're supposed, to, we're supposed to have a relationship with our Father in Heaven. Go to Him for all decisions. Take our daily decisions to Him. Being content where we're at. Willing to be obedient in the hard times. And have total reliance on His grace, His strength, and His mercy. Now, we could just say in the beginning of verse 3, say, trust in the Lord, and that's it. But guess what? At that point, our carnal nature, we would just isolate ourselves. We would not do anything about it. We would just think that our relationship with God was one way, and it didn't spread across horizontally. But he says, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. So last night at... Uh, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. My youngest was screaming bloody murder for about two hours. She ended up being constipated, but I thought we were going to have to take her to the ER, but then I couldn't sleep. So I'm sitting there reading the BBC News, and I actually came across an interesting uh, study. It says that um, people that are lonely so have isolated themselves from everybody. Uh, Health-wise, it's so bad for you that it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So again, we are supposed to trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. We cannot isolate ourselves. Why? Because we have the answer within, within us. We have the answer in our hands. We have the answer in the gospel. So even those that have endured the pain of losing a loved one or losing that relationship, guess what? We need to use that to console those around us, those that are experienced that. And that's what I've had to learn the hard way is guess what? There are going to be people that are put in my path that are experiencing a loss of a loved one. And guess what? I can point them to Jesus, point them to the one who's going to console their hearts so they're going to fill that void that has been made empty through that death. And now to the word, to dwell in the land. So the word dwell is to permanently stay, abide, continue, and have habitation or inhabit. So some of those in the room who are military are like, well, I'm only here for a certain amount of time, so how am I supposed to permanently stay, abide, continue, have habitation in habit? Guess what? It's a mentality. Am I going to jump in and immediately make a difference in my neighborhood, in my church, in my community? And then the befriend uh, uh, faithfulness uh, means to be fixed, to stand, to tarry, not to waver. 
And in the Amplified Version, it says, feed on His faithfulness. So are you committed to your neighborhood? Are you committed uh, to making an effort in getting to know your neighbors? And within getting to know those neighbors is your purpose to help them with any pain or loss. With the ultimate goal of sharing the Gospel with them. And with that, is it about your glory? Is it about His glory? Getting... uh, making sure that His will is paramount. So here at Grace Point, guess what? We do this a lot through community groups. And our goal through community groups is to make disciples who live in community, not live in the community, but live in community with each other for the community that we live in. So if guess what? If we're not living that out, we're living in isolation, and people are not being able to see what God is doing through our pain, through our struggles, and they're not being drawn to Him. Mark 12, 30-31 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So when we love God that much, guess what? It's going to flood into all the relationships around us. If we truly love our neighborhood, guess what? We don't share the gospel with others. We're basically telling them that we hate them because we want them to disappear like the grass and the flowers and just fade off into uh, fade off into remembrance. Which leads us into verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. So what When you see that verse, what do you see first? Do you see delight yourself in the Lord? Or do you see, yay, He gives me the desires of my heart? Which one comes first? But as you look at it, depending on how you answer that first question, do you want God or do you want His things? So now that you're sitting there contemplating that, let's figure out what the words meant in Hebrew as well as the original intent of the author. So the word delight means to be happy about, take exquisite delight, to make merry over, make sport of, to be delicate, to be soft, or to be intimate. As you think about that, guess what? You can only delight in someone, in the presence of someone, in a relationship with someone. So we need to replace the worry and the envy of the wicked and the evildoer with a conscious delight in our Lord. And that delight is that same delight that my kids have when I walk in after a terrible day at work and they just yell, Daddy, and they all jump on me. Immediately, whatever has happened during that day is just washed away because of their delight for me. And that is the same delight that we're supposed to have of our Lord. Now to the second portion of uh, verse 4. It says, And He will give you the desires of your heart. So growing up, I was told uh, that If I delight myself in the Lord, He will give me everything I want. Well, as I dug into the word give here in the Hebrew, it rocked my world. It says to give. Okay, that's pretty uh, self-explanatory. But the next three definitions are key. To set, to put, or to conceive of. So the intent is not for us to get what we want, but He conceives, He sets, He puts new desires within our heart when we truly delight in Him. Charles Spurgeon says this, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. 
Why is that? It's because now your will is aligned with His. And He is a sovereign God and His will is going to be accomplished. Psalm 63, one, uh, verse 1 and verse 3 says, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So just looking at that verse, like he is desperate not for God's things. He's desperate for God. He's desperate for an encounter with the Most High. And at the end is so key. He says, my lips will praise you. Is that how we respond when things get tough? For me, no. It was not that way when my dad passed. It was hard. That is what we need to be after. Be after our presence of our Most High. And it's all about attitude. It's kind of like when I ask my daughters to unload the dishwasher. Right now, them being their age, that's about uh, their only real chore. But it's so frustrating when I ask them to do it and they obey, but their attitude stinks. They're like literally grunting, stomping the entire time. And I'm like, finally, I cut them off halfway through. I'm like, fine, go to your room. I'd rather do it myself than have to deal with that stank attitude. But whenever, whenever I ask them, or I don't even ask them, and they know that the dishes are clean, and they automatically do it, and they do it joyously because they know it will bring me joy, it pleases me so much, and it brings me such great joy that their eyes are no longer on themselves, but are on others. But also with us, when we are self righteous, guess what? Sometimes when we're so self-righteous, we're too good to enjoy sin and we're too good for God's grace. Why? Because sometimes we think that we earned His favor and that He chose me because I was so special. So we end up obeying, very similar to my kids, begrudgingly because we know we need to do good, but there's no delight in our Heavenly Father. Why? Because we don't think we need His grace. Because we don't think we ever did anything wrong to need to be saved from. So for those that may not uh, be Christians here, you're like, I, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like you're talking about delighting in your Father in Heaven. But I don't even know who He is. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You may go, yep, I've sinned. Or maybe you're like, no, I'm perfect. Guess what? All of us have sinned. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So guess what? Our sin deserves death. But instead of us dying, Jesus took our place. So we all deserve to wither up like the grass. Another verse that hit me, in the stomach uh, studying this because growing up um, when I would go to youth camp everybody would be uh, preaching on hell so kids were going to the altar to get their fire insurance but then they would return to whatever they were doing uh, 1 Corinthians 16.22 says this if anyone has no love for the Lord let him be accursed so guess what we can't just say the words and not change our life change our heart and our love towards our Father. We must love Him. We must delight in Him. 
And John Piper says this about 1 Corinthians 16.22. says, Love is not a mere choice to move the body or the brain. Love is also an experience of the heart. So the stakes are very high. Christ is to be cherished, not just chosen. The alternative is to be cursed. So some of you guys are probably quite convicted right now. Because you're struggling, delighting in God based on the current circumstances, based on uh, the pain that you are suffering. But guess what? There is grace. There is still grace. John Piper also says this, so uh, now there was only one hope, the sovereign grace of God. God would have to transform my heart to do what a heart cannot make itself do, namely want what it ought to want. Only God can make the depraved heart desire God. And he got this from reading John 6.44 that says that the Father alone draws people to Himself. It is not us choosing Him, but He chooses us and He draws us to Himself. And guess what? For both scenarios, if you're a Christian or you're not delighting in Him, there is grace. Because He alone can give us that delight. He alone can give us it our joy that is in Him. But it is a gift. Because it's a gift, it still takes our priority and effort on our parts to maintain that. And we must remember Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Nowhere else are we going to get that fullness of joy other than in His presence. Many times in our culture, we'll see people that are happy, but that's circumstantial. In His presence, our circumstances don't matter. Just being in His presence, we will be full of joy. Another quote says, Desire and delight have this in common. Neither is the object desired or delighted in. God is. If all we do is chase after joy, we'll never ever get it. If we chase after God and we chase after delighting in Him, guess what? We will get joy. On to verse 5. It says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. So the word commit in the Hebrew, which uh, took a little bit for me to understand, means to roll, to remove, or roll away. I'm like, that is not my definition of commit, especially in the, in the Air Force. That is not my definition at all. So I had to dig a little deeper. And it says the verb tense is a state of being. It is not changing. So it's not just for a season. We're supposed to roll our burdens of life upon the Lord continually. In uh, New Testament that parallels this verse is Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. It says, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So as he's talking about taking the yoke, he's referring to oxen in the field. So those oxen put that yoke on. They no longer have to worry about the path that they're going to go, nor the plan, because guess what? Their master, they have to submit to him and He's in charge. Same for us, is whenever we submit and give Him our burdens, we take His yoke. There's work to be done, but we no longer have to worry about the path 
that we're going or the plan he has for us because now he is in control. 1 Peter 5, 7 parallels this verse as well, saying, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So he knows what is best for us. He wants us, and this may be hard, this is hard for me to hear, he wants us to endure and persevere through those hard times because through the tough times, our character development occurs. Your character development is what will give him glory and bring others to him. It's not our pain-free life. It's not our comfortable life. It's not our safe life that is going to draw people to him. It's going to be seen us real, dealing with real situations, but relying on him. We have to give him control. All right, now on back to verse 5. Second portion of this verse is trust in Him and He will act. So that word trust is the same as we described before, is running for refuge and He will act. He is sovereign. He is in charge. But guess what? Whenever we try and take control, when we try and uh, act and maybe possibly take revenge, guess what? We're telling God that we are a better God than He is. Romans 12.19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let God fight your fight. Let Him fight for you. Give over control. Alright, on to verse 6. It says, He will bring forth your righteousness as a light, and your justice as the noonday. So the word for light and noonday is basically talking about the brightest light back in those days, which would be high noon, which we obviously know that in August in Vegas. Uh, we cannot hide from that sun. So it's the same idea that He will make your character perfectly clear and bright, and no cloud will remain on it. But by nature, we are not righteous. So how can this be? Well, it points to 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took our sin and died the death and took God's wrath that we deserve. In, in exchange, we got His perfect righteous record. So you may be enduring something that isn't fair right now. But that is not fair. That He took everything we deserved, our, our sin, our death, God's wrath, and instead we got His righteous record. We have to continue to remember to rehearse the Gospel whenever we get in those hard times, in those deep times. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it is because of Jesus' perfect life that we are made righteous. On to uh, verse 7. It says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. So the order of these seven verses are so important. First, he starts off with basically warning us of don't idolize the wicked. Don't idolize those around us. Don't make idols of what they have. Then it goes into 
trusting in Him, delighting in Him, committing your way to Him. And now it talks about being still before Him and waiting on Him. If we jumped all the way to waiting, guess what? We're going to wait there for about five minutes and we're going to go, ah, I got this. Let me take care of it my own. But we have to trust in Him first, delight in Him, commit our way to Him, and then we can truly wait and be still before Him. But one thing I've realized is God seldom shows up early. He always shows up perfectly on time, but usually never early. And why is that? Because in the waiting, we truly learn what He needs us to learn, that character development, but mainly that we have to rely on Him. But at the end of that verse, it tells us not to fret over those that prosper or the devices of the wicked. So He's again warning us of those idols that steal our affections, that basically we put in, in place of God. It may be a good thing. It may be family. It may be a, a car. But we now put it in place of God. But it starts to steal our affections because we start to worship it. And it cannot bear the weight of our worship. Only God can. But guess what? When we worship things that are not God, those idols end up crushing the worshiper. So here is a response by Augustine uh, who lived way, uh, I believe, 3rd century uh, A.D. of how God changed His affections from many centuries ago. He says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men, who see all honor in themselves. O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. So is that the same response that we have on how God has changed our hearts, changed our affections, and replaced those idols with Himself. So ultimately, if we're tempted to envy those around us, we need to look to Jesus. We need the Gospel. We need to remember the gift that He gave us and what He endured for us. So you may be enduring a lot of pain right now and you have been obeying God, but you see someone who looks happy and successful and you want to you're tempted to cut those corners to get your happiness back. But guess what? Jesus is offering joy that is sustained. The world is offering just happiness that is dependent on your circumstances. But we need to look to Christ. Our life is hidden in Him. Our future is in Him. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. Through Him, God has given you an inheritance in heaven. We must keep following Jesus on that Calvary road. He is our Redeemer and He is our joy. We have to remember Psalm 16.11 which says, You make known to me the path of life. The world doesn't. Only He does. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our joy is found 
in His presence and in His presence alone. So we've got to remember, we've got to trust in the Lord. We've got to delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still and wait for the Lord. And throughout that entire process, which is not just once, but it's continual, we have to identify and kill those idols that are crushing our joy. Let me pray for you.